In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet, where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of the Bones and Bobbins podcast. This is Natalie, one of your merrily morbid hosts. We jump, kind of stumble into our first episode here, but soon find our stride. So jump on in with us and enjoy. We have snapping. We do. Or clapping, not snapping. Oh my goodness. We snapped Um, with flat hands. It's fine. It's our own thing. We made it up. It totally is. So do we want to start just doing a how are you? What creepy shit have you been doing or whatever? Sure. Let's do that. All right. Um, I have nothing to say because I... I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Thinking's good. Thinking's good. Sunday we went to the cemetery with, you know, a vintage dress form and various (laughs) accoutrements to take photos. Yes. And and that's not creepy at all. Not even a little bit. Not really. No. No, it's not. Um, So not creepy. But I did find a stone at... um, at our local, like the one that's like down the road from us, which yeah, it I'm confused because as far as I know, it's the only cemetery in town, but it's like super super old and small. Clearly, mm-hmm. no new people have been buried there, so I'm wondering where the locals are buried. That is an interesting and valid question. <laughs> where are the bodies? <laughs> so I'm like. Maybe there's one I just haven't seen. So we drove a little bit out of town to another one. Um, But before we did, I was looking and there's a headstone and there's, I'll have to find it and read it. But it's, uh, it's like this, you know, super early on feminist right speaker gave a speech at that spot. And I was like, cool, that's pretty cool because there's still nothing around here but farmland. So (laughs) knowing that, you know. Well, yeah. feminist history took place. By I mean, a we've got a lot of that here, but it's few and far between if you're not in like a city city. Right. Yes. Oh, I guess since this is our first episode, people maybe don't know where we are. That um, is true. Or who we are, for that matter. Or so, any of us, really. I, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> um, so... I'm Haley from the blog Red Handled Scissors and also the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. Yay. And uh, now we're doing creepy things. <laughs> and I'm Natalie of Oobler Designs and not of any other podcast right now. So this is my soul podcast baby. Soul podcast. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, and... I guess I should also say that I am in Brooklyn, New York, so I haven't gone outside at all recently. (laughs) Right. I am in Viroqua, Wisconsin, which sounds really tiny, and it kind of is, but it's a wonderful little hippie town uh, surrounded by a lot of farm in the Driftless area. And Driftless? uh, Yeah, it's the Driftless. Wow. Uh, Yeah, so like glaciers, I think it's called that because glaciers miss this section, Oh, so there's like some history there, but we've only been here a year. I hail from the Milwaukee area. So, ah. um, so we've only been here about a year, but we love it. And we have, so, um, but yeah, tiny towns with weird little cemeteries. Yay. I mean, I grew up in the rural Midwest, uh, yeah. in Michigan. So I am very familiar with tiny towns and, cemeteries with mysteriously old stones right yeah there's definitely one in the one square mile uh, definitely not city township (laughs) unclear um where my grandparents are and where my mom grew up 
that is in the middle of the woods, you know. Right, because it should <laughs> just be able to bury anywhere. So there's there's mm-hmm. literally, like even uh, in the town I grew up in, Menominee Falls, which is just outside of Milwaukee, uh, we had uh, a few places that were, you know, they were farmland forever. And mm-hmm. the families that, that lived there just buried the family on the their plot of land. Well, of course you did. Irregular. Why wouldn't you? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll just be like these random plots, you know, with a little, sometimes a little gate around them, sometimes not. Um. <laughs> Graves in the woods. Graves right. in the woods. Yes. Always comforting. Yes, it is. Yes. I think I would rather have my grave in a woods than a cemetery. I uh, feeling pretty great about cremation. Right. That's probably, that's, I like cremation and I like the, where you can get. Or body farm. Yes. That would also be fine. I just don't want to be closed into anything because I do not like enclosed small spaces. That makes sense. That makes mm-hmm. sense. There's actually in my local cemetery, which is the Greenwood um, Historic Cemetery. It's a Victorian cemetery in Brooklyn and it's gigantic. There are a few of the um, safety coffins that have the bells where, you know, just in case you should wake up from an illness that slowed your heart and breathing enough that you might not suffocate. And so there are a few where you can see into them. Like there's the, the glass where you can look in just to make sure. Um, and they're, uh, they're mostly, like, fogged up and frosted up. You can't really see much into them. But there are a few with bells. And every time I see them, I'm like, ooh. Yeah, Buried Alive is pretty much, I would say, my top number one worst way to die. Uh, yes. Uh, I, uh, well... I don't know. I, I, I feel like I could come up with a whole list of ways. <laughs> and um, maybe for another podcast. <laughs> um, you can do like Zombieland, the, how they did the hit of the week. <laughs> we can oh. do like the worst way to die of the week. <laughs> I Actually, I kind of like that. I'm not opposed to it. All right. So, so let's do that. I, I think that... This week's worst way for me is going to be falling from a height where I can see all the way down and know what's going to happen all the way down. Because I just had a nightmare about it. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Poor thing. Yeah, that's that's a not so fun one. Yeah. No. So that, that is my, that is this week's. So, and yours for the week is going to be buried alive? Yes, without the bell coffin. Without the bell. I don't think there's actually been any evidence that that, that those have ever worked. Mm. I'll have to look that up. But So, I guess maybe we should dive into the creepy thing that we're actually talking about today what do you speaking think? of speaking of death <laughs> <laughs> speaking of death and ways to die um i would like to talk about miyu kojima oh she is a i believe she's 27 right now and miyu lives in japan like and currently she's yes, she's oh, currently wow. in japan um and japan is facing a I guess you could call it an epidemic. It's basically a period of time right now where they're having so many people who live alone die and then not be found for days, sometimes weeks. Oh, Um, that's horrifying. Right. And so much so that they have a word for it now, which is kodokushi, and Hmm. it means lonely death. Oh, are these people without families or just without families nearby? It's it's a combination of things. Um, they're not all, you know, it's anywhere from uh, suicide. It's like the causes of death themselves vary. Okay. And then um, it's just out of touch 
or maybe they do have family that are near, but they don't see often or communicate with. Um, and they're typically single, don't have offspring, things like that. Um, so it becomes, it's become this huge thing. Um, and then they will say, which I find, I don't know if it's sad or if it's endearing. I haven't figured it out yet. All right. But they will say that somebody suffered from Kodokushi, a lonely death. So even if it's not, so it doesn't matter that it's, if it was a stroke or if it was suicide, but that's how they refer to it um, in what I read. And I'm like, oh, that's really sad. Um, So I also think it's a little bit lovely. Right. Like, I'm like, I can't. Yeah. I'm like, it's, it's. It's a but, nice yeah. way to honor, but at the same time, it's sad because, you know, then that person, you, everybody knows that person was alone. Yeah, um, and I mean, it's easy to romanticize those words, and it's an entirely different thing right. to deal with the reality of it. Right. So when Miyu was about 17, uh, her parents were going through a divorce, mm-hmm. and her mom stopped by her father's place with, like, the last of divorce paperwork. And found Miu's father on the ground. He had suffered a stroke. He was still alive, though. So Mm -hmm. she um, she called for help, and the father and uh, Miu's father um, got hospitalization and got better. And but it stuck with her that he was that close to having been completely alone and had died. So it kind of stuck with her, and she ended up. Working for a company that uh, goes in and cleans uh, apartments and homes after somebody suffers a kodakushi. Mm-hmm. And um, she worked there for four years and did roughly 300 cleans a year. Wow. And yeah, which, you know, that's going to take your toll. So you have this this oh my gosh this could have been my my father and i think that was a way of probably processing not only the separation or the death of her parents marriage but also realizing that that could have gone a lot darker than it did sure and coming face to face with mortality in that way especially at a young age like it's hard for i mean we're grown-ups and it's hard for for us to process that and I mean our parents are presumably older than hers were at the right. time so but you yeah. know you, you're, when you're young and you're like oh my parents are gonna live forever till they're like you know 90 bajillion years old and be just you know wrinkly and old and walking around you don't think of no losing them typically at a young no. age so I mean thank goodness but also no <laughs> <laughs> right so um, some of these some of these places that they that they cleaned as well were not specifically from deaths. Um, there were also a few cases where uh, it was kind of a hoarder situation where okay. the person living there, but the person would call and say, "Oh, I need help with you know my my aunt's apartment," even if it was theirs because they were so embarrassed. But um, yeah, so some of the some of the cleaning that she had to do. Um, was of a hoarding situation. And when when she arrived to do the cleaning, the bodies had always been removed. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have to specifically deal with that. However... That I was going to ask if they were still no matter, in place. Yeah, they were not in place. Um, they were removed, but, you know, it's, it's still there in some yeah. cases when people, I mean, they leave a mark behind if they've been there. A literal mark. Right. So, or a spiritual mark. Either way. <laughs> Probably both. both. A little yeah. bit each. Um, <laughs> especially in the Japanese culture, uh, which is a whole, mm-hmm. other, whole other week of talking. <laughs> so, Indeed. Uh, in, obviously, the work impacted her. And so as part therapy and part like public service campaign to, to show... Um, the humanity of what occurs she had created a she created one diorama of one of the places she had cleaned up as she did um a before 
And then they showed photos of the after um, for a convention that her company did to show their services. And because she felt that, you know, they took these photographs of it, but she felt that the photographs were too gruesome and inhumane. Okay. And so she created this diorama, which in the process of creating the diorama proved to... Kind of be cathartic for her. Okay. So she and how detailed are the dioramas? They're very incredibly detailed. Um, so you will see, um, you will see blood. You will see there's, you will see the 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 gore, but like down to there's one where there's just these tiny itty bitty little plastic milk cartons, and you know just piles piles of things in there, like each little thing. Um, so it is pretty pretty detailed um but she felt that like the photographs that they were using didn't really capture the sadness and the humanity so she started creating yeah. these and created so many of them that she's uh she then published a book last august oh um and of all of these and they're just amazing um and it's and it's i think the whole thing Coming from, I went to actually went to school for art therapy. So, coming from the the perspective of of that, and then just of a human, like just how she processed everything from her parents' divorce to this, you know, kodakushi that is happening in her country, and her seeing that, and her her whole thing behind the dioramas was that it wasn't how they died and it wasn't you know that they were alone mm-hmm. because in her words you know every, everybody dies alone like when death comes for you you don't know where, if you're going to be in a crowd of people or by yourself but it was the length of time right. until discovery that okay. you know these people had lives and there's one room where he um somebody had hung themselves and you know, like they had wrote, I'm sorry in Japanese, um, Gwen, and in like scotch tape on a wall. Oh. And that was all that they had. And then they left behind like a little will. And like she did like the coffee table that had little empty sake glasses on it. And like oh, it, it was very that's detailed. Heartbreaking. But it's, that one's incredibly heartbreaking. And it's. But at the same time, it's it's nice that people people who's who just want to stop that pain that they're having Mm -hmm. that person is going to be remembered yes and that sometimes is it just the fact that you're remembered that you you lived and you did something and you were a human being and yes even if you didn't have friends or family someone's gonna see that and just like you and i we're gonna be like oh and we're gonna feel for them and they're gonna have that I'd like to think yeah. that they know somewhere, somehow, that they've got that out there, that somebody has has known they existed and felt bad that that is how they ended up. Yeah, I So I think I the agree. dioramas are amazing and how they, you know, just a really great way of processing a situation. She doesn't work for them anymore. Like, after, I think after she published the book and it became a pretty big thing, I'm not mm-hmm. sure where she's working now, but she was there for four years and did roughly 300 cleans a year. So that's a lot of trauma to probably process. So I'm guessing she'll probably do some more. But yeah, so it started out as a, you know, a humanitarian effort of saying those photos are too gruesome and don't show the humanity of what we do, you know, turned into this therapy for her and a public service campaign that people can look at now and go, oh, maybe we should keep in touch with, you know, or check in on people that we care about because... That's not yeah. a fun way to to be left. No, definitely not. And I think um, living in New York City right now, there's mm. um, a lot of death happening at the moment because we're the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. And there's... It's those kinds of deaths are happening here. And because there's death on such a massive scale at the moment, it can be incredibly hard 
to remember that those numbers are individuals. Yes. Instead of just something horrifying that you know, like they're actual people. And I think it's really beautiful that she was able to, I mean, almost get to know them, I would think, through this process and to see them as people who had a place in the world. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Wow. That would be a really rough job. It would. It would be. Um, And I've often... You know, especially every time I watch Sunshine Cleaners, I'm like, I mm-hmm. could do that. I could help because I could I could do that for a family because it's got to be one of the most intimate things you can do for another human being. Yes. Um, I feel to... that way about um, uh, mortuary science also. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's and I, I can't imagine how many people do that and don't. Like, they should receive a card. I'm just saying. We should yeah. find out who our, who our crime scene and, you know, and our Kodokushi cleaners are. And they should get some hugs because they probably don't. You oh hear about, you know, the steam cleaner guy that'll come in and do your carpets. But honestly, mm-hmm. it's not like, I mean, I suppose it's not like they have commercials. But, you know. Well, it's, it's often a- not specialty companies. It's often, like, deep clean house cleaners. Um, I mean, sometimes there are certainly yeah. companies that specialize in it, but because right. that's I a mean, whole it, set of OSHA standards in there. That's and yeah. processing it. Yeah, I mean, I we should maybe look into that a little further at some point because that would be interesting to yeah. actually understand that world. Because I guess I I know more about the funeral and funeral home side of things than I do about that but hmm well I have uh, sort of the other side of this dollhouse spectrum I am certainly going to be talking about death scenes but these are going to be murder scenes. Murder. Murder. Most foul. <laughs> um, so, my dad is a, well, was a director of a crime lab for many years and was a police officer my whole childhood. And so, I grew up often visiting him in crime labs. And so... Forensic science has always sort of been a been a subject close to my heart, which sounds very strange, but is also true. Um, it's how I learned trig, um, triangulating patterns. Nice. Yes, <laughs> and uh, so thanks, Dad. Um, but so I want to talk about a woman who is referred to as the mother of forensic science. And her name is Frances Glessner Lee. And so Frances Glessner Lee, I think, is really summed up by this quote that opens a Harvard Magazine article about her, which is, To a forensic investigator, Trivial details can reveal transgressive acts. Consider the card Frances Glessner Lee carried in her later years, listing both her married name and her honorary title, Captain of the New Hampshire State Police. A hybrid of the calling card ubiquitous in genteel society into which she was born, and the business card of the forensic visionary she became. That artifact is material evidence of her unusual life. I like that. Yeah. I mean, of course, leave it to Harvard Magazine to (laughs) really nail the lead here. Um, So 
Francis Glessner Lee was born in Chicago on March 25th of 1878. If you're thinking about modern forensics, mm-hmm. this ain't it. Um, <laughs> this is more, this is Victorian era. This is more Sherlock Holmes. And it's really, really fascinating. And also still applicable to today's forensic science. So that's kind of neat. So Frances was the daughter of also Frances M. Glessner and her husband, wealthy industrialist John Jacob Glessner. Um, Apparently she was called Fanny, um, probably to differentiate from her mother, and I guess it's a good thing that they were in the U.S., not... (laughs) Uh, the UK. Um, Agreed. So moving right along. (laughs) Uh, In 1898, at the age of 19, she married a lawyer named Blewett Harrison Lee. And they had three kids. Right. (laughs) Um, So the couple divorced in 1914. So I guess he lived up to that name because she was clearly awesome. Um, That's an early divorce, man. Right. And so, according to the same Harvard Magazine article that I quoted earlier, their son said that the marriage failed due to, quote, creative urge coupled with high manual dexterity, the desire to make things which Lee did not share. (laughs) So, um... She wanted to make shit, and her husband was like, nah, man. That's creepy. <laughs> um, so, she was raised to be a society matron, but obviously, that didn't really stick. Um, right. Though she did weirdly kind of end up doing normal things for women of her class at that time. She spent her fortune contributing to a cause worth supporting. She enjoyed making miniature scenes. And she threw regular dinner parties. There you go. Um, All of these were completely respectable things for her to be doing. But she got kind of goth about it, um, is the thing. And the miniature scenes unsurprisingly definitely include dead bodies so okay then yeah you know like you do so her career was really interesting but also most of the historical references i looked at did not go into very much detail about it because woman i would assume Uh, right yeah I mean, that was a big right. title to have then, especially oh, in a yeah. very male-dominated industry. Well, so she wasn't actually a police officer ever, as far as I can tell. Um, in the early 1930s, she embarked upon a career in legal medicine, which... I today learned that that term is applying medical knowledge to legal problems, which makes sense, but it's just not how we refer to it today. Um, And that would eventually become the foundation for her role in developing the field of forensic science, for which she receives justified credit. Um, So as a direct result of her interests, in creepy things she went on to use her inheritance to establish the department of legal medicine at harvard medical school in 1936 which would exist until 1966 when it evolved into more modern forensic science so that department stopped existing um So, if you're wondering how she went from being a normal 19-year-old society wife, like you do, um, and 
and somehow ended up really being interested in dead people. Um, it's kind of a roller coaster, so maybe buckle in. Nice. Yeah. So Frances was friends with one of her brother's Harvard classmates, George Burgess McGrath who was studying medicine at Harvard Medical School and who also happened to be really into death investigation. Um, shout out to my fellow deathlings. He was obviously <laughs> death positive before his time. Um, he would also go on to be, um, believe, a medical examiner. But I have... I wasn't very interested in the dude. So, carrying on... Uh, so she was friends with this man and was, remained friends with him throughout the moving on of her career, but things got a little bit weird. And so, by weird, I obviously mean awesome. (laughs) So this is where we enter the nutshell studies of unexplained death. Yeah, so starting in 1896, that's right, before she got married, so her husband should have known what he was getting into. Right? Uh Uh-huh. He just couldn't handle it. She was far more awesome than him, clearly. Actually, he was pretty awesome. He was a legal scholar and a professor, and, like, he was cool in his own right. He just wasn't as interesting. Right. Um... But um, she started building basically dollhouse-style dioramas of murder scenes. And she ended up building a total of 20 extremely detailed but extremely not kid-friendly dollhouses. So... Most of them were made between 1940 and 1949, but obviously the earliest in 1896 was a bit of an outlier. I guess she took a break. I, I feel unclear about that. <laughs> I guess while well, she was having her dinner parties is when she took her first say, deep dive. She probably had some big, huge thing happen then. Uh, well, marriage, I believe. Yeah. And oh, raising right. children. Uh, three of them. <laughs> I think that's what <laughs> happened. Um, that, yeah, so, that'll do it. Yeah, so they all have titles. And a, a few of those titles are Dark Bathroom from November of 1896. Parsonage Parlor Ooh. from the 23rd of August 1946. And Woodman's Shack. 8th of February, 1945. So, not particularly imaginative, but you know what you're in for, for sure. Still intriguing. Yeah, and so, in addition to just being interested in creepy things and handy with making miniatures, her dioramas were actually really scientifically detailed much like the dioramas that you were talking about, um, they were real-scale replicas of crime scenes built on a one-inch to one-foot scale. So, yeah. And, I mean, honestly, it's a good thing she had money because (laughs) those things cost thousands of dollars each to create. Um, and they weren't just, well, I don't know if pretty is what you would call them. It's what I would call them, but they weren't, they weren't just intricate. They were detailed down to the smallest areas. So the windows opened, there were window locks where there were window locks, um, she, I guess, wore out-of-date clothing so she could have worn fabric in the style of 
the generally less wealthy people who are being represented. Um, And uh, so their clothes would show proper wear when she dressed the teeny tiny bodies. Um, Did she do teeny tiny knitting with teeny tiny needles? You know, I don't know. Um, But I imagine that if we looked at all of the dioramas, which you can do, and there's going to be a link in the show notes. Not that I'm um, secretly plotting a new hobby or anything. Oh, no. But I mean... (laughs) I for sure have done knitting with pins. It's a thing. Ooh. Uh, Yeah. So, the crime scenes that she was portraying here also included details like calendars that included all of the months. So, not just the ones that you could see. And really specifically placed and angled bullet holes. And painstakingly recreated blood spatters. Wow. Yeah. She even went as far as to do extremely detailed painting of the tiny corpses um, to show discoloration and decomposition. Like, like proper modeling with... Yes. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and this was well before what we now think of as crime scene photographs and so she was creating such such detailed renderings of these scenes and like she wasn't just thorough she was properly badass she went to the actual autopsies and like did all of these things that women of her time just wouldn't well often wouldn't have been allowed to do but wouldn't have been expected to do and i think she's sort of lucky here and that she was such an oddity that people didn't know what to do with her so she wasn't excluded in the way that future women then would be plus i'm sure the money probably didn't hurt if she was that Uh, definitely yes she was she, she was, was slipping, very, yeah. slipping a five dollars to the mort- mortician. <laughs> oh, probably. Yeah. Um, so, oh, uh, 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 I need to catch up with myself on my notes. <laughs> okay, so the reason that she made these detailed dollhouses was because she truly believed in the idea that crimes could be solved with science and with visual and material evidence, which was a pretty new idea. That is not really how crimes were solved at that time. Right. And so to her, making these representations could clarify whether something was a murder or a suicide, or natural causes, or an accident. And it probably, I mean, if you think about it, she's really brilliant in that she took something traditionally feminine, like crafting and painting, and and used it to validate her existence in a male-dominated world. Exactly. So... It was and like, she, look, I, I have this idea and you won't listen to my words. But if I recreate this and show it to you, you kind of have to believe me. Oh, yeah. And there are photographs of her literally being the only woman with a seat at the table. Um, because she arranged lectures and gave them wow. to men at the time. And I want to hang out like, with her. Right, me too. And it's like a respected <laughs> academic voice. Right. Presumably because they didn't know what else to do. Her dinner um, parties must have been the best. Oh my gosh, they were definitely murder dinner parties. Yeah. Um, so these dollhouses still exist today. After her department at Harvard closed down in at the end of the 60s they 
have been maintained by I think the state of Maryland and the and sometimes they're still shown as art because they are, they are pieces yeah. of art um, but also they are still currently used in forensic training like currently That's today amazing yeah and so in uh, late 2017 to early 2018, the Smithsonian American Art Museum's Renwich Gallery displayed the dioramas and did like full gallery tours. And the New York Times also covered it when it was there. And so you can see videos and tons of detailed, like really clear photos. And they are, they're just mind blowing. From like the tiny, tiny buttons and buttonholes. Yeah. I mean, wow. Um, So she actually came by her interest in this kind of detailed work, pretty honestly. Uh, Her dad was really into intricate furniture design. And so she grew up surrounded by really well-made and detailed furniture. And so Beauty I can and sort function. Of, yeah, and so I can sort of see <laughs> how that would have influenced at least her th- thinking about shapes and details. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how close she would have been with her father. I assume not very because of the time period. Right. But um, her father went on to write books about furniture design so maybe she was if she's a rare oddity in all the other areas maybe she latched on it was like one of the first dad girls and hung out with dad and learned everything and sucked up the knowledge yeah maybe i mean as one of those myself (laughs) um i could totally see that but i'm not under the impression that that was the case at least from what i've read though i could be wrong um so She, obviously, was meticulous enough to soothe my actual clinical OCD, which is kind of impressive. Um, And she was also dealing with subjects that her own life wouldn't have necessarily brought her into contact with. I mean, she was a well-to-do woman, and she was dealing with largely, a lot of places said middle-class but mm-hmm. I do not th- I think they mean middle class. I, I think that they certainly mean poorer, if not lower middle class at the time period. Um, and the subjects were sex workers or um, victims of domestic violence. Like wow. these, yeah. So it That's wasn't- even more amazing to give a, again, to give a, a representation of a life that was overlooked by others. Look yeah. Look at the connections. I know. Um, and so, like, it wasn't as though she was looking into high society crime. She was looking into the real everyday crime scenes that existed at the time. And, like I said earlier, the models that she made were and continue to be so good that they're studied now. They're useful in training students of forensic science today, which is ridiculous when you think about. Like, some of them were made in, what did I say, 1868? Like, or 66, I think. But what? Like, these Victorian models are still showing up in classwork, uh, which I just think is amazing. And so because of the importance of her work, she was made an honorary captain in the New Hampshire State Police where she lived Ah. um, in 1943 and became the first woman to join the International Association of Chiefs of Police. 
And so she was clearly, I mean, the title was honorary, but she was clearly respected. She it. Yes. She clearly was a peer of the and men. And a total badass. It, exactly. Seriously. And what she made were both tools and art. And, I mean, as a professional... Exactly. As a professional maker of things. Yes, please. That is exactly, exactly right. Um, So, Frances Glessner Lee, alas, cannot hang out with us. Because she died in 1962 at the age of 83. So can you imagine the changes that woman saw in her lifetime? Like, and created. Yeah. Well, definitely I mean, Seriously, created. if you look at where we are as true crime aficionados yes. that we are. I mean, like, and, and respect for death and mm-hmm. all of that. It's, am- it's amazing. I mean... She's oh yeah the mother of forensic forensic science. Yeah, like I remember when um when my dad first switched to computer matched fingerprint identification mm-hmm. um from five point identification um with magnification. Like, I remember when the digital capabilities and fingerprint databases happened. And, like, just seeing now where, like, that began and how ridiculously far that has come in Mm -hmm. my lifetime. And I'm 37, so Mm -hmm. it hasn't been that long I mean it's probably I'm not sure when it first happened I remember my dad bringing home a computer (laughs) in like 1980 oh gosh I must have been three because um, my parents got divorced when I was three and it was in our house so yeah Um, so that must have been before that started happening. Um, I wonder if her people have tiny little fingerprints. Oh, people have my, my fingerprints. When my dad was studying fingerprints, mm-hmm. um, and this is certainly a story for another day, um, <laughs> when he was studying for the state police exam and going mm-hmm. into forensics, he used to read me fingerprint manuals <laughs> as bedtime stories. And nice. my fingerprints exist in a plethora of my dad's <laughs> school papers. Um, yeah. So you're not getting away with anything. Oh, no. No, <laughs> definitely not. Um, so anyway, back to Frances. Um, you can actually visit the house that she grew up in if you want to see the furniture that inspired her. The house, as far as I can tell, doesn't really have anything... It is more focused on her family and uh. not on her specifically. I think mm-hmm. it's actually more focused on her dad, who was of course an industrialist, a, a known, a known yeah. person. Um, but nonetheless, you can visit the Glessner House, which is a house museum in Chicago. Um, I guess you can't oh, visit so it not now. Far. You can't no. visit it now no, 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 because no. none of us can visit anything now. But, pandemic. but maybe when it comes the... out, right? <laughs> maybe when this comes out, we might be able to. That is true. Yeah. And we can visit the dioramas online. And I think that her birthday should be a national holiday. Heck yeah. Let's uh, let's celebrate that. I I'm. I'm all for that. Yes. She is my new favorite badass. By the power vested in me, by the <laughs> borough of Brooklyn and the state of New York, I hereby declare March 25th to be Francis Glessner Lee Day. That's right. Yes. I've decided. I second that. Yep. 
So we're going to just celebrate that every year now. And Absolutely. Um, you listeners are just going to have to come along with us on that. Yes. Yep. Yep. Because it's fact. I've said it. It's done. Yep. It's done. Um, so, yeah. that That is the badass mother of forensic science and maker of dollhouse crime scenes, Francis Glessner Lee. Our new patron saint. Yes, definitely. Definitely. The patron saint of forensic science. There probably is one. I mean, there is certainly a patron saint of officers because many wear them in their, the bands inside their hats. Um, What is that? St. Christopher? Probably not. I don't remember. I'm not so good with the saints. No, I um, I did not grow up Catholic. I grew oh. up in a Baptist church. I'm a recovering Catholic that got kicked out of CCD at least three times. Uh-oh. Um, yeah. The first time I was seven and I asked if, Ad, um, if Adam and Eve had belly buttons. <coughs> Actually. Because I, we I need like those. To, that is such a good question. It has I, never occurred to me. But in my head, I was like, uh, well, that's how we ate when we were in the tummy. And uh, if he made Adam and Eve, they didn't come out of a tummy. So they wouldn't have needed a belly button. Do they have one? I Apparently, that's not a good question, though. No. Catholics don't like question askers. No. Um, the Baptist church, especially my uh, youth pastor growing up, was none too fond of me either. Um, <laughs> which is why today I'm a practicing witch. And I'm cool with everybody's religion. You do you. Exactly. Just don't try to make me do you. Indeed. On any level. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, there there are several problems with that. And um, As soon as it came out, I was like, yep, that's just going to sit right there. (laughs) Yep. I'm going to leave it there. Nobody should do anyone without permission. Respecting consent. Yes. <laughs> consent is such a beautiful thing. It is. And on that note, perhaps we should <laughs> close out for this, the very first episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Uh, joyful. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.